Well, this morning we begin a new series in the book of Titus, and although a very small book in contrast to Exodus's over 1,200 verses, um, <laughs> these, these 46 verses in Titus are incredibly rich theological truths that I believe will deepen our understanding of what is most important to every Christian, which is the gospel, the powerful effect that the gospel is to have upon our lives. Um, The book of Titus is a book that lays out for us, as Paul writes, he lays out for us this wonderful gospel foundation so that we will live godly lives, so that we will adorn the gospel, so that the mission of the gospel will advance in the world. That's what this book is about. And if you would, turn to the book of Titus, and let me read as we begin with these first four verses. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Father, we do Give our attention to your word this morning. Because, Lord, we we are here by faith, believing that you are speaking to us. And, Lord, as you speak, we ask that you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might know you better. Lord, use this time to instruct us and use this time to transform us that we might live for your glory because of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Titus was a Greek who came to faith in Christ because of Paul's ministry. You see in in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Most commentators, most historians believe that, that Paul was directly responsible for leading Titus to Christ and to this understanding of the gospel. And, and Titus comes to faith in Christ. And over actually a 20-year period, Titus is a co-worker, a co-laborer with Paul. He was a, a valued friend. He was a valued co-worker who Paul, Paul has great trust in. And so, so much trust that Paul 
allows Titus, has Titus, handle a number of crisis situations for him, particularly in Corinth. These, these are never easy assignments. The Corinthian church has gotten way off base. They are, they are wayward. There's immorality going on in the church. There is, there is false teaching. There's arrogance. There is a rejection of Paul's apostolic ministry and authority. And so Paul, uh, he, he writes this, what is known as the severe letter. He writes a severe letter to the Corinthian church to correct the Corinthian church. But rather than Paul taking this letter, who takes this letter? He sends Titus to take the letter. And when, when messengers of, of Paul, when they were delivering letters for Paul or, or for Peter or for John, when these letters were being read in the churches, it wasn't as though they just stood and read the letter and then sat down. They expounded on the letter. They, they were representative of, of the person writing that letter. And so they were in a sense bringing that authority to bear on these people. And that's who Titus is to Paul. These never easy assignments. But Titus, he handles them skillfully. And so Paul, again, giving, giving Titus another challenging assignment, sends Titus to Crete. A, it's a large island off of the coast of Greece. And he is sent to put in order what was in disorder. Verse 5 of, of Titus, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Because there was much disorder going on there. It is a Crete was a strategic island. There was, it was a crossroads of, of the world in, in many respects, many important harbors, and people from around the world, the known world then, would, would end up in Crete. And, and even though it was this important place, it was also a place of, of treachery and violence and immorality and deceit. And it is, it is a place where the, the reputation of Crete is, is not good. If you look down in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul writes, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. This is where Titus goes. This is where Paul sends Titus. When they, when they first arrived on Crete, there were all, when, when Paul and Titus first arrived on Crete, there were already churches established there. Decades earlier on the day of Pentecost, you read that in the crowd as Peter is preaching and they're hearing the gospel preached all in their own languages, among those crowds were Cretans. And so it is most likely that these men who heard the gospel when Peter was preaching brought the gospel back to Crete. And, and now by the time Paul and, and Titus arrived there, there's about 20 some odd churches on this island. But these churches have gone astray. Over the time, these churches began to be influenced by, by wicked and deceitful leaders who, who led these believers astray, who led them away from gospel truth into, into their own sinful teaching about Greek gods being their savior. And so Paul confronts this heresy by reminding the Cretan church of the true gospel and who the true savior is. Paul is in a sense, 
setting things in order through Titus by his letter. So he assigns Titus this task to put things in order, and this letter provides the instructions for how he is to do that. And as you read through chapter, chapter 1, you will, you will see that Paul is telling Titus, the first thing you do is set the church in order. We talk about elders. And then in chapter 2, he's talking about setting the home in order. And then chapter 3, he's talking about, hey, setting your mission in order to the world. So he's talking about the church, the home, and the world. And, and how this group of churches, how these men and women of God are to be redirected away from these influences of false teachers, these influence of, of Cretans who, who, are, who are leading people astray. How he wants them to, to learn how they are to conduct their life at home and in the church and in the world. And so he's, he wants them because he knows that having a gospel foundation will lead to a life of godliness, which will lead to a life that adorns the gospel, which leads to others seeing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ. A small letter with powerful and rich theological truth. And these first four verses, they, they set the theme, brothers and sisters, of the entire letter for the importance of godliness in the life of a Christian. But first, Paul, before he talks about godliness, before he talks about how to live, he begins by reminding Titus what his apostolic message is all about. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here's what my message is about, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which when you talk about knowledge, it, it means gospel, their, their, their gospel understanding, which accords with godliness, which leads to godliness. It is, Paul is talking about, and then he goes on, in hope of eternal life. He is talking about the hope of eternal life found in Christ. Before Paul talks about godliness, he talks about faith. And he, the grace of God because of the gospel, a gospel that, that changes everyone who believes, a gospel that transforms, a gospel that they must never forget, a gospel that must always astonish them and always amaze them because of the grace of God that has saved them. And that, that my brothers and sisters, that is what has happened. They have lost sight of the gospel. They're no longer astonished by the gospel. They're no longer amazed by the gospel. Why? Because the gospel has been changed. These Cretan teachers, these, these false teachers are, are teaching them, as you see in verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them, these Cretans, sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. And that's what was happening on Crete. Oh, these churches were, were being turned away from the, the truth. And so this, this book, brothers and sisters, this book has great relevance for us individually, but it also has great relevance for us corporately. So, so this morning and over the coming weeks, we, we must allow Titus to evaluate our lives. 
to evaluate our lives as, as God's word always should so that we are ensured that the gospel has its intended effect upon our lives, that we might adorn the gospel by the way we live, that we might adorn the gospel in our church, that we might adorn the gospel in our homes and then in the community that we have been called to serve. And so before Paul gives these instructions on how we are to adorn the gospel, which he says at the end of chapter, chapter 2, he says, not, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Before Paul gives instructions on how we are to do that, he starts with the gospel. He starts with all that has been done for us in Christ in these four verses. So let's look at how the gospel is at the foundation of our, our godliness in and, and three, three ways. I want, I want to show you the effect of the gospel, the certainty of the gospel, and the reality of the gospel. Look at one, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That, first of all, that's number one, that's the effect of the gospel is that Paul's life has been changed. Paul, Paul is a servant of God. Paul is ever aware of his salvation first. Paul, a servant of God. And then he goes on to talk about being an apostle. But before he is, he even mentions his calling, he is aware of his salvation. He's no longer his own man. He is a, a servant who belongs to the Savior. He is, as that Greek word servant literally is doulos, it is a slave. Paul is a slave of God. Christ as well as an apostle to his church, a church that, that, that Paul himself deeply loves. And so this is why he writes to Titus to protect this gospel for the churches on Crete. And in, in doing so, Paul is doing what he always does at, at, until the moment of his death. As a slave of Christ, he fights for the truth. He fights for the gospel. He protects the gospel. And so he writes here in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For your sake, Paul has written this letter. God has preserved these words for your sake, for the sake of your faith and your knowledge of the truth, that your knowledge of the truth, that your gospel understanding is never, never changed, but remains firm. And so Paul goes on to talk about this message to remind you, to remind us that God has chosen you. You are elect. God has, has chosen you, elected you, and for your sake and the sake of your faith and the knowledge of the truth, which is the gospel, he says this, let me tell you, before I tell you anything else, let me tell you of the one great truth one more time. One more time. You've not heard the gospel enough. The gospel isn't a one-time event. It is a life event. It is a daily event. It is a moment-by-moment -moment event. The gospel never stops. It doesn't slow down. It doesn't get put on the shelf saying, okay, time to move on to more important things. The gospel, Paul doesn't do that. 
Because he knows what you believe about the gospel, what you understand about the gospel, what you know about the gospel will determine how you live for the gospel. And on Crete, the gospel has been assaulted by false teaching and has been maligned and it's no longer any gospel at all. And that is why the Cretans are, are given over to, to myths and, and false commands and, and things that are defiled and unbelieving. And they, they, it says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And as a result, they are detestable and they are disobedient and they are unfit for any good work. And so the gospel not only is maligned, It is no longer advancing. And Paul says, no, we we need to get back to the truth. We need to get back to the foundation. This is a common occurrence in our day and age as well. The gospel is maligned. The gospel is changed. The gospel is what people in their own human wisdom think it should be. And, and rather than preaching a gospel from the infallible, in, inerrant scriptures, they, they preach a gospel that is humanistic. They preach a gospel that is no gospel at all. Greg Gilbert, in his book, What is the Gospel?, gives examples of weak or totally misguided definitions of the gospel. One is, the good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? That's one, defini- one, one man's definition of the gospel. Here's another. Here's the gospel in a phrase. Because Christ died for us, those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing. Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. Now, which of those is correct? Neither. Neither is correct. One is much better than the other, but neither is correct. There's no gospel at all in the first one, and the second one is woefully incomplete. There's no mention of sin and wrath and resurrection. To have an incomplete gospel is no gospel at all. And so Paul is adamant. The Cretan churches need a biblical understanding of the gospel to protect them from error so that they can live the godly lives that they have been called to, that they've been transformed by the gospel so they can live for the glory of God. Greg Gilbert goes on to say, the biblical gospel, by contrast, is like fuel in the furnace of worship. The more you understand it, believe it, and rely on it, the more you adore God, both for who he is and for what he has done for us in Christ. And then there's this doxology, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, Paul cries in Romans 11, and it was because his heart was full of the gospel. Don't lose sight of the gospel, Paul says. Don't let it become so familiar to you that it has no effect on the way you think and live and breathe. I mean, is is the gospel just another familiar Christian phrase to you? 
Are you so used to hearing it that it's actually become, you become a bit anesthetized, a bit numb to what it does, what it has done for you? Does it, or does it stir your soul like it did when you first came to faith in Christ? Does it stir you? In 1969, my dad was working for NASA, and he took us down to, to Titusville, Florida. And there we sat just a few miles away watching the Apollo 11 moon launch. It was awesome, absolutely. As, as, as a 14-year-old sitting there watching the Saturn V rocket take off, the size of that rocket, the size of that flame, watching that thing lift off into the air, knowing where it was going and what it was about, and that the first man was going to walk on the moon, and you see this thing lift off, it, it was just awe-inspiring. Many years later, I'm driving up through Flagstaff, Arizona, I make my way to the Grand Canyon, and I see the Grand Canyon for the first time. And it is awe-inspiring. Words cannot describe the Grand Canyon. You have to see it in person. There's no picture book. There is no description. You have to stand there at the edge of the South Rim and not fall in and look and see the vast broadness of God's creation. And you are awed. In the mid-2000s, I'm flying from one part of India to the other. And we take the northern route. And the pilot gets on and he says, look out to the left side. Look at Mount Everest. And I see Mount Everest. And it is awe, the tallest mountain in the world. It is awe-inspiring. And yet, years later, those feelings of awe and astonishment have faded. It doesn't feel the same. I talk about it. I can remember it in my mind. But it's not the same. The same can happen with the gospel. It can fade. And it must not happen. It must not happen. Because otherwise, I call it gospel loss. It just, it just fades a bit into the background. Are, are you still astonished by the gospel? Or are you now so familiar with this word it no longer elicits in you a deep thanksgiving and gratefulness and joy that it did at first when you came to faith in Christ? In, in Paul's life, Thoughts of the gospel always bring about doxologies, praise. Oh, God, the magnificence of God. That's Paul's view of the gospel. And Paul, Paul insists at the beginning, before he talks about godliness, what, what exactly that looks like practically, he just brings us back to the gospel. But he doesn't stop because later on in, in chapter 2, verse 11, he goes back to the gospel again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify 
sanctify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. But he doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, he goes on, for we ourselves, verse 3, were once foolish and disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. That is the gospel. Paul never stops. He never stops. And before he tells you all these imperatives, all these, these commands that you are to do, how you are to live, the first thing he does is say, look, let me, let me give you the indicative. Let me tell you what's happened to you. Let me remind you what God has done for you. So that when, when you are living, you are pursuing, you are following, you are doing it not because it's a legalistic duty, but because of your thanksgiving and your gratefulness and your desire to please, to love God. And so that is, that in Paul, it is the effect of the gospel on our lives. Get the gospel right so we can display the transforming power and effect of the gospel in our lives. Secondly, he talks about the certainty of the gospel in verses 2 and 3. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The certainty of, the, of this gospel that Paul goes on to describe in the certainties that exist because of the gospel. The certainties in our lives as believers because of the gospel. And the first one is the certainty of the future in hope of eternal life. God has promised all who believe the gospel that they have hope for eternal life. A hope that does not fade, a hope that will not change. This hope is unassailable, it's indestructible, and it is guaranteed because it's embedded in the character and promise of God. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Eternal life is a present possession that you have. Of, it's possession of all who believe in Christ and it can never be taken from you if you believe in Christ. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God promises that's all we need. That is all we need. His character can do nothing but be faithful to his promise because he cannot lie. Oh yeah, we lie. We are unfaithful and we forget. And I'm grateful that God doesn't forget. I mean, imagine God just thinking, I, I, I knew there was somebody I said could come to heaven. I just can't remember who it is. 
but never God. The hope of eternal life is a powerful force in motivating us towards godliness. The gospel promises a certain future that makes everything in this life pale in comparison. And so there is a certain future for us. But secondly, there, there's a certainty because of the past. Look, look at Paul goes on. And at the proper time, well, let me go back, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. And then these, th- these four words, before the ages began. Before the ages began. God's promise of eternal life, brothers and sisters, it did not start when we believed the gospel. It started long before. Before God said, let there be light, he said, let there be life for you and me. Ephesians, if you remember, Ephesians 1, 4, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Even as he chose us in him. If, if we are saved, it's because God set his affection on us long before this world ever existed. God set his affection. God loved you. And had this moment planned for you long before the world ever existed. You are his elect. And the knowledge of the truth of the gospel gives you a hope of a future resurrection and an eternal life because God has promised it in eternity past. It is not affected by this world because this world didn't exist when that promise was made. It's eternal. But it is also experienced in the present. Look, this is how he did it. Look at at verse three. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. (laughs) He sent someone with the gospel to preach to you. And in his eternal plan, he sent someone with gospel words to preach to you at the exact moment he prepared your heart to hear and receive the gospel message. In eternity past, he planned it. And in the present time, at the right time, at the proper time, he sent someone to tell you that Christ died for your sins, to tell you that you were a sinner in need of a savior, to tell you this gospel message. God is the creator. Man is a sinner. Christ is a savior. And your response is to turn to God in repentance and faith. And you will experience the hope of eternal life. And so, and like Paul, 
This is our mission. We, we preach Christ crucified. We preach him again and again and again and again because he, Jesus Christ, is our only message. He is our only certainty. There is no godly life without the gospel. This is why Sunday after Sunday after Sunday you hear Devin preaching the gospel when he is preaching or me preaching the gospel. You hear the gospel as you're singing songs. You hear the gospel as we're reading scripture. You hear the gospel in Sunday school school. The children hear the gospel in their children's ministry. The gospel never leaves us. Again and again and again we preach that gospel. C.J. Mahaney said this. He said, this is what true preaching is about. True preaching reveals the promise of God before the ages began. True preaching reveals the fulfillment of that promise of the risen Christ of the cross in the present. And true preaching reveals the promise of eternal life in the age to come when all is consummated and we see him face to face. This is what true preaching reveals because it reveals the gospel. This is the preaching that God commanded Paul to faithfully bring to both the lost and the church. And it's our message as well. And it gives us a certainty. This gospel gives us a certainty that we were chosen in eternity past. That we have the hope of an eternal future with God. Eternal life. And that we have the present power and effect of the gospel in our lives today. It's why it's preached today. Not that you get saved each and every week. It's preached so that you are reminded of all that God has done and that you are empowered by his spirit to live the godly life he has called you to live. And finally, the reality of the gospel. Verses three and four, Paul writes, which have I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ, our Savior. Paul finishes this opening greeting with a reality check. He makes it very clear in his opening sentence what this this letter is all about. He wants to ensure every Christian has eyes that look upward, not inward. And, and, And as you read through, you see... Five times in these four verses, God is mentioned. A servant of God, God's elect, which God, the command of God, God the Father. Paul is, is turning our eyes upward and not, and not inward to what we're supposed to do, but, but who has done what for us. And twice he mentions God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Savior. And you will see that phrase throughout the book of Titus. Paul speaks of the reality of the gospel that we need a Savior. He he ends his greeting with the command of God our Savior, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reality of the gospel is that it not only reveals a glorious hope and future, but also a horrific and deadly problem that cannot be solved by any human means. Because it all began with one tragic moment in history. Remember, back in Genesis 2, God creates Adam, places him in the Garden of Eden, a place that's 
peaceful and pure and tranquil and filled with God's presence. And then he creates for Adam a helpmate named Eve. And together they enjoy the beauty of this wonderful garden with unhindered fellowship with God. And Adam and Eve, they're created in God's image and their identity is in him as worshipers, as, as workers for him. They're subjects of a gracious and loving king. And then Satan comes along. And he deceives them with a promise of pleasure for a better life. And rather than serving God, they can become like God. They can be God. And at that tragic moment, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they exchange the glory of God for a lie. And now everything has changed because God curses them and all of humanity for their sin. The curse is laid upon them and they are expelled from the garden. Listen, that's part of the gospel. But the curse is far worse than just words of shame as they leave the garden. It is also a promise of death and judgment, and wrath, and eternal punishment for sin. It is a curse that falls on all humanity because God must punish sin. And so Paul twice reminds Titus in this section, everyone needs a Savior because all are cursed. All. All need to be saved from God himself, from his wrath and his judgment and his eternal punishment. And and it is only God who can save them. The one they need to be saved from is the one who saves them. And Paul knows this oh so well because he himself had the sentence of death hanging over him as a blasphemer of God's church, as a persecutor of God's church, and as a murderer of God's people. The reality of the gospel is, brothers and sisters, sin kills. Sin kills. It brings death and it brings wrath and it brings eternal judgment and there's nothing we can do humanly possible to stop its consequences. But, but, and we we just read this a little bit ago, but according to God's mercy, but when the goodness of loving kindness of God came, but God has a better plan. Hope is offered in Christ who entered our filthy and broken and sin-ravaged world to, to bear our wrath, to bear our sins on the cross, to suffer in our place, to be a sacrifice and a substitute so that God would reject him and not us. That is the gospel. And when he had died and was in the grave, he rose again three days later. That is the gospel. This is Paul's gospel. Impossible problem, God's perfect solution, but one we must respond to. Listen, if you're you're not a Christian, if you're sitting here and you're not even sure you're a Christian, you're not a believer, consider, you must consider what stands before you. Do you pay for your sins or does Christ? Do you bear God's wrath or does Christ? Do you place your hope in your own goodness or in Christ's? Brothers and sisters, friends, before all of us stands eternity. An eternity that will be filled either with hope or great despair and suffering. Now, 
God is speaking to us in this letter. The gospel is amazing and it's transformed our lives and because of this gospel we have hope we have hope of eternal life but but that's only the beginning we we have something else like Paul we have a responsibility we have a responsibility to make this gospel known in our church and in our homes and in our communities in the world that we live in. And we make it known by our godliness and by our proclamation. We make it known. And it is, as we will see, a godliness that flows not from our own human efforts, but it flows from grace because we've been transformed. We are new creations in Christ, a grace not of our own strength. And it is a godliness that will adorn the gospel because it's not separated from the gospel. Brian Chapel, in his commentary, said this, when the message of the gospel comes unglued from godliness, faith shatters. No matter how commendable our intentions may be, the message of grace apart from godliness destroys the hope that the gospel offers. Those who embrace grace must also learn to love piety, which is the fruit and fuller confirmation of the gospel in our hearts. Without the gospel, we cannot live godly lives, and without godliness, we cannot adorn the gospel in the church, our home, and the world. Now, I titled this series, The Good Life is the gospel. And when I talk about the good life, I'm not talking about the good life of being on the beach with a nice, you know, Pepsi in your hand and a thing of Pringles over here and just laying there with a good book. That's not the good life I'm talking about. The good life I'm talking about is the godly life. The good life that we live for Christ that adorns the gospel, that glorifies his name, that is a Christ-centered life that makes his name known to a world that is dying and destined to an eternity that is filled with the wrath of God. And it begins by us believing and remaining, remaining astonished by the gospel. So this morning, let us plead with God that by His Holy Spirit we can live godly lives that adorn the gospel of grace. Now we're going we're gonna to sing a song and this song I asked Devin if, if we could sing it this morning because it is a song of, of it's a prayer. This song is a prayer. A prayer that, that really fits well with this passage. So let us, let us pray this prayer through song that we might adorn the gospel.